Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Will Summer, and welcome to The Daily Beast Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast. My book on QAnon, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America, will be available in February and is available for pre-order now. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer, joined as usual by Kelly Weil. Kelly, how's it going? I'm good, Will. How's it going with you? Well, you're coming to me live. I'm standing in my garden of evil, (laughs) surrounded by the statues of disgrace, Eastern Bloc dictators. No, I'm just kidding. That would be Harlan Crow if he had a podcast. Harlan Crow, the wealthy guy, Clarence Thomas' best friend. Harlan Crow, a character who sounds like he emerged straight out of the much-missed TV show Justified. He has been in the news Kelly, get us up to speed on Harlan's really bizarre Nazi memorabilia collection. Yeah, so this is Harlan Crow. Sounds like a Batman villain or maybe like a true detective kind of suspicious character. But no, what he is is he's a billionaire conservative mega donor. And he came under a lot of scrutiny last week after ProPublica published this article showing that Justice Clarence Thomas has received just obscenely expensive vacations from this guy. They're going out in the super yacht. They're going to Harlan Crow's private estate in the Adirondacks, that sort of thing. And this is something that justices should really probably disclose. ProPublica has a lot of legal experts being like, oh, yeah, you can't take that stuff for free. And Clarence Thomas is like, what's the big deal? I'm just going on the yacht with my buddy. Well, it's not just like he's hanging out with his buddy. Harlan Crow has a lot of political pull. And he also has uh, some really interesting, I don't know how indicative they are of his politics, but he's got some interesting collection. After this article came out, it came to light that he collects Hitler artifacts. He's got two of Hitler's paintings of European cityscapes. He's got a signed copy of Mein Kampf in his house. He's got, quote, assorted Nazi memorabilia. And that's in addition to, as you mentioned, well, the statue of despots in his backyard. It's interesting. So the Nazi thing, I guess this has sort of surfaced in the past about Harlan Crow, But now, because we found out this whole Clarence Thomas thing through the ProPublica story, it's really a chance for everyone to consider. Should one of the most powerful businessmen in the country, is it good that he seems to be obsessed with Hitler? And so he has these defenders who say, well, Harlan, he only collects this Hitler stuff. And by the way, it's like very, it's kind of like if you wanted to live like you were in Nazi Germany, it's like Nazi linens and stuff. It's very strange things to collect. And so it's like this idea that, oh, Harlan hates them so much. He just likes reminding how much himself, how much he hates them. But like, Think about this. Let's take the politics out of it. Let's say you had a creepy neighbor. Let's say this is like a Blumhouse horror movie, right? You go over to his house and you're like, what's this guy up to? You open a closet. He's got Nazi linens. He's got a signed copy of Mein Kampf. Would you say that's a good guy? I wouldn't. 
Yeah, that's at the very least someone whose yacht I would not hang out on without like 15 additional witnesses filming at all times. I think this is getting a little bit distorted because people are logging on being like, well, I own a whole bunch of World War II books. Does that mean I like the Third Reich? It's like, well, no, I own those too, but they're for learning about World War II, right? They're about, they're for learning about fascism. I don't think you can learn all that much from Hitler's like tablecloths or something like that. I mean, Ben Shapiro has trotted out the same argument. He's like, it seems like a reason you might own this stuff is to remember the things that you hate. I mean, do you have to look at Hitler's shitty watercolors to remember the Holocaust? I think you can do that just fine via other means. The linen. I remember how much I hate Nazi napkins. <laughs> so odd to me. I mean, there is a larger import here, which has been, as you said, I mean, you mentioned Ben Shapiro. You suddenly have these guys, these blue check guys on Twitter saying, hey, look, it's often people who've been to the Harlan Crow mansion yes. who are sort of like, there's one aspect of like, oh, maybe, maybe I need to make it look like it wasn't so weird that I was hanging out with the Nazi collector guy. So they say, like, look, Harlan, he's such a good dude. And I think this offers some insight into the just huge pools of money that float around in conservative media. I mean, the last time we got reminded of this was when Steven Crowder absolutely flipped out that he was only being offered $80 million in his contract. And so this term has kind of fallen out of favor. But this is what we used to call wingnut welfare, right? This is the think tanks and these kind of fake magazines that are propped up and all these things and how just being a conservative pundit can be so incredibly lucrative. And so suddenly you have people like Charles Murray, for example, the guy from the bell curve. You have these people coming out and saying, look, Harlan Crow is a very honorable man. Like, well, I'm sure he is. He either pays for your salary or pumps money into this same ecosystem you benefit from. Yeah, this is such a good point, because as people are noting, Harlan Crow, this is all, I think, taking place and he owns like a private office complex, which is another level of weird billionaire stuff I can't even parse. But Barry Weiss is like University of Austin is located in that office park. How deep does this rabbit hole go? So they all, this was so illuminating for me, right? When all these people came out of the woodwork to defend Harlan Crow, it's like, oh, you all hang out. Like there's a club and you're not in it, right? But I mean, Harlan Crow, he's so rich that he commissions photorealistic paintings of his friends hanging out with him. So there's one of Clarence Thomas. There's one of Charles Murray. It's just like, it's a real kind of like, it looks like someone took a picture on an iPhone. He's like, great, can somebody just paint that for me again? photorealistic style. Yeah, these people are all, they're all tight. I think like one other point I would make here is that conservatives love to bash the left for having weird art. Like if you cast your mind back to Pizzagate era, they were all ragging on John Podesta with some admittedly kind of weird art. I wouldn't have hung it up in my room, but like doesn't mean he eats kids. They were saying that Hillary Clinton was doing satanic blood stuff with Marina Abramovic because Marina Abramovic does like, I don't know, kind of shock jock art. Does that not apply to people who literally have Hitler's paintings? Like, I just want some consistency here. I think that's a great comparison. I mean, the idea that, oh, look, he's got this art that is, is a little odd. And you like whenever we talk about John Podesta's art, we have to say like, <laughs> oh, not for me. But and then meanwhile, this guy has the Garden of Evil, which, by the way, as far as I can tell, is all left wing dictators. Yeah, it's got Shea Guevara out there. It's like, I don't know if that's necessarily comparable to Hitler. 
about that. Yeah, and then we've got all the Hitler stuff inside where we show the visitors. A little interesting to me. Anyways, I think Harlan Crowe, just get a new hobby, man. Yeah, absolutely. Batman villain name, Batman villain hobbies makes sense. (laughs) Okay, Will, we've got some really interesting reporting out of the Trump campaign. Looks like they were mulling hiring one of our favorite right-wing characters, Ms. Laura Loomer. What's going on with that? (laughs) Ms. Loomer. Yeah, so this is an interesting one. I mean, look, one of our bread and butter items here, it's the world of conservative internet fame balls. And I have to say, 2024, I think, is shaping up to be quite a year for our character. So the New York Times, Jonathan Swan, Maggie Haberman, they brought out the big guns for this one. Trump has reportedly told his staff to hire Laura Loomer in some capacity. It was a little unclear whether it was for the PAC or the campaign itself. But this is very interesting because Laura Loomer has this history of absolutely insane decisions and really heavy sort of anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant bigotry. She has done, I mean, I have like a whole screenshot full of her telegrams where I'm like, huh, if this person ever achieves more prominence, this might become relevant. So the one that I think people forget a lot is when she and Milo posed for glamour shots in front of this collapsed Florida bridge where a bunch of people died and they were sort of making the point that the engineer was a woman and so they were like, feminism killed. I mean, it is like it's stuff that is like truly just deranged. Yeah. I mean, this is someone who in an old interview she did said, she's like, yeah, I'm on board with white nationals and what's wrong with white nationals? I'm like, she just, she puts it all out there. She's someone who's kind of had to break through a lot of noise of horrible right-wing figures. So she's actually gone there. She said that stuff. She's got banned from Uber Eats for being too racist. She's got filmed in a bar hitting on a neo-Nazi telling him he looks like an Aryan god or something. This is not a serious character. Oh, uh, yeah. oh brother. Oh, this was... You're bringing back <laughs> the deep lore. Why not? You listen to the podcast. We'll bring you in on this. I was sort of like, can the listeners handle this one? So she was filmed hitting on a guy who was at least fascist adjacent and was very... This was like 26 or 2015. So this was kind of like the high days of the alt-right and was very kind of like Aryan looking, I would say. And she's hitting on him and she says, she said something about him being Aryan or something. And she said something like, like I have that Ashkenazi IQ. And then I believe there was a comment about her body. I mean, she was really hitting on this guy is the point. And this video gets out and it gets very, it gets a lot of traction, I guess. So anyways, this is a person who has lived quite a life and much of it is documented. <laughs> she chained herself to Twitter, handcuffed herself to Twitter HQ, the whole thing. So now, Kelly, I'm curious for your thoughts on why this came out. I mean, this strikes me as the kind of story story that we used to get a lot during the Trump administration, where these officials would be like, oh my God, he can't really do this thing. He mused about it. I really don't want him to do this. So I'm going to leak it as a trial balloon that I'm hoping gets shot down. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think that is such a compelling theory. I mean, there are so many, even now, weird factions in the Trump campaign. He's been casting in his lot with, as you call them, fame balls, right? The Nick Fuentes, the Nico, the YouTuber, not to mention Kanye West. So there is this kind of like insurgent, weird online faction of the Trump campaign. I think there are probably some relative adults in the room who don't really want to associate with that. And yeah, during the Trump presidency, we got a lot of these leaks. People being like, oh man, he's just going to do it. He's going to act on his worst impulses. Maybe if we get in the press, he will moderate himself a little bit. And I think Laura Loomer is exactly the kind of person that people just don't really want to work with. It's not just that she has gone on podcasts being like, oh, white nationalism, A-OK. It's that she doesn't sound easy to work with. She has a lot of feuds with folks who people in the Trump campaign might actually like. So it's completely reasonable for me to believe that somebody did leak this. Imagine explaining this to the swing voter, right? Okay, why is this person giving, why is Laura Loomer, for example, perhaps giving a speech before the Trump campaign rally? 
Well, okay, she got famous. She disrupted a performance of Shakespeare in Central Park in which Trump was the Caesar standard. I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense to swing voters, I think. So we've got the currents are at play here. So, I mean, I think we're talking about perhaps what the motivations inside of the Trump camp might be. But also we're talking about the post Kanye West presidential campaign ruins, right? And that's sort of the other thing that this is all playing out in, which is for a brief moment, a lot of these people had access to a lot of money. And I don't think Laura Loomer was one of them, but she was sort of traveling in that universe. I mean, Kanye famously called her or she called Kanye on Infowars. So for these people, like kind of got an injection of relevance. And I'm talking about people like Ali Alexander here, Nick Fuentes and Milo Yiannopoulos. And then the Kanye thing is, has as far as I can tell, collapsed. And so now these people are turning on one another. And so you have this feud going on where Milo's on one side and all the people, I, other people I named are on the other. Part of that, the one person who remains allied with Mar- with Milo is someone who's a much bigger deal than the rest of those people, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And the reason for this is because Milo was her intern. And if you believe the scuttlebutt, and this has not been proven, there are claims that he lived with her at one point, that he at least lived on a property, that he was doing all this other work for her. So their intern, their, excuse me, their relationship goes beyond, I would say, necessarily just being an intern. And so Marjorie Taylor Greene comes out swinging after this Times article comes out. And she says, Laura Loomer is mentally unstable and a documented liar. She cannot be trusted. She spent months lying about me and attacking me because I supported Kevin McCarthy. And so there we get this reference to this idea that all these right wing people were attacking Marjorie. And then she says she loves the alleged FBI. Who knows what that's about? But Kelly, what do you make of this? Yeah. So Laura Loomer has just she's got so many like weird partisan fights within the right. I mean, I think we've got to note that she has run for Congress multiple times in Florida, and she's always lost her primary. And she's lost them in really kind of bitter ways to her most recent one. I think the only county she won was the one that has the villages, the massive Florida retirement community. They love it. her in the villages. They love her in the villages. That's a whole probably its, its own segment if she runs again. But she immediately turned around and took a leaf out of Trump's book and said that there was fraud, said that the Florida Republican Party was conspiring against her and that everyone in this party is corrupt and it's all a plot. So this is someone who is not here to make friends. She and Marjorie Taylor Greene have been sniping each other on Telegram and Twitter for quite some time now, a lot of it over Milo. Arguably, neither of them should really be associated with. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this kind of like leads into a larger thing, which is that Milo has been turning on all these people, I think often, frankly, out of just general love of enmity. He's <laughs> claiming to produce a sort of quasi documentary about Laura Loomer, and he claims he's talking to all these people. Like, there are all these accusations of sex crimes back and forth. By the way, none of them really substantiated. But I think the larger point here is that if you're Donald Trump, I mean, I think Laura Loomer is someone you probably want to keep outside the tent. You want to have a little plausible deniability. But I think it makes a little sense that she got on his radar because she's really been going hard at Ron DeSantis. And we've seen this over the past month or two of Trump getting a little more aggressive with DeSantis, where he's saying like, hey, maybe this guy's a pedophile. And so she's digging up all this dirt or sort of fake dirt on DeSantis. She showed up and protested his book signing. I mean, so I think this illuminates, as her company was called, illuminate. (laughs) Double O. This illuminates her, these sort of the devotion the kamikaze, or if you want to say go Dune, like the sort of imperial Sardaukar of fame balls that circle <laughs> Donald Trump that Ron DeSantis really doesn't have. I mean, he's got Benny Johnson. He's got it's sort of Benny Johnson. He's got John Cardillo. I mean, these are not like people who necessarily are going to like throw, like handcuff themselves to the door of a bookstore to disrupt a Ron DeSantis event. 
Yeah, absolutely. Right. You want that start a car hopped up on anti-DeSantis spice. Just really, I'm sorry, that's all the doing Laura got. She's someone who will completely put it all out there for someone she doesn't like. And I think that's maybe a helpful person for Trump to have in his tent, except he doesn't want to have her name on the campaign. Right. So it's good to be able to sling her at a book event or something like that. Not so much having her make decisions as to the campaign's direction. One other thing I want to bring up, Kelly, is what do you think this says about like how online Donald Trump is headed into this election? I mean, I I think we've seen for the past couple of elections, voters are concerned with Republicans obsessing over sort of nonsense issues or culture war things that really only serve as wedge issues. And that basically there's a sense that they wish Republicans would be normal again. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is in Mar-a-Lago saying, I think we should hire Laura Loomer. It's insane. This is something that you can only back yourself into if you're extremely online. Most people do not know who Laura Loomer is. Most people do not want to know who Laura Loomer is, right? This is not someone that you come across at CPAC or whatever. This isn't someone that has a healthy relationships with the conservative community. This is someone who exists online, typing out slurs on their Telegram channel and hanging out with Nick Fuentes. To even be mulling that relationship suggests kind of a bit of a remove from the mainstream Republican Party. Wow. Well, this is one to watch. So speaking of volatile personalities, we've done a lot of Twitter talk lately, but I have to say, the Elon Musk blow up with Matt Tybee, I think, offers an interesting insight into sort of the perhaps the new face of right wing media. Kelly, have you been following the falling out between Elon and his substackers? Yeah. So a while ago, some, to use the euphemism, kind of independent media personalities, the Matt Taibis of the world, the Barry Weisses, the Michael Schellenbergers, started publishing what they called the Twitter files. They had exclusive access to data at Elon Musk run Twitter, and they were going to put it out there and show that the previous Twitter regime was oppressing the right. Something like that. That gave us great nuggets like, oh, no, the Biden campaign asked Twitter to please take down links to Hunter Biden's nudes, that sort of thing. These were the top line items that people were concerned about that Matt Taibbi and company were holding out as the real smoking gun at Twitter. But even that uh, prioritized sort of reporter source relationship seems to have fallen apart a bit because Matt Taibbi, he does his reporting most of it on Substack, you know, it's an independent logging site. Substack, I think witnessing the recent implosion of Twitter says we got to get something out there. We'll make kind of a microblogging platform called Substack Notes that can work kind of like tweets. I hadn't actually heard of this until this blow up, but once Substack started rolling this out, Twitter blocked links to Substack. It's like, oh, this is a competitor. We're not going to let you go there. This is actually a huge issue to Substackers who rely on platforms like Twitter to cultivate an audience, to get their work out there. They don't work for publications with advertising budgets, that sort of thing. And Matt Taibbi is like, hang on, you can't do that. You can't block links to my publication. So he announced that he's kind of stepping back from Twitter. This site, he really, I think, put a lot of his professional credibility on the line for. So as you said, I mean, there was a symbiotic relationship, I mean, between the whole point of the Twitter files, essentially, is to paint Twitter's previous leadership as just like completely run amok so that whenever Elon puts a Doge picture on the website, you think, well, at least he's not working for the deep state. So instead, the genius, such as it is, of the Twitter files is that you team up with people with like this sort of intellectual dark web credibility, some people with some like ostensible liberal bona fide or mainstream media credentials. So you have Barry Weiss from the New York Times. You have Matt Taibbi, who used to work for Rolling Stone and has this kind of like edgy, gonzo, left-wing guy persona. You have all these people. And so then you kind of launder this stuff through them. Effectively, that just ends up giving House Republicans some stuff to do hearings about. And that's why I think in part, you kind of see the veil fall away when then you see Matt Taibbi just palling up with Republicans in Congress. So 
but there is this relationship because these guys are making money through the Twitter files by funneling people to their Substacks. Well, when Substack, the company, starts their Twitter clone, Elon says, oh, no, I need to block this. So then that kind of severs the relationship. Matt Tybee already smarting from this Mehdi Hassan interview on Peacock where he kind of gets knocked around a little bit. He then, I think he sort of felt the need for some independence from Elon Musk. And he says, well, I'm going to leave Twitter. There's an interesting thing Elon Musk does, which is he just lies about people constantly. And so people may remember when he called the Thai guy who was rescuing children from the cave in Thailand a pedophile. I mean, he just makes these things up. And so in this case, he says, well, Matt was being paid by Substack, which is, I guess, I mean, it was kind of a funnel. He claimed he was a Substack employee, which isn't true. I guess the long and the short of it is that these are people who sort of allied themselves with Elon Musk for, can't speak to their motivations, but it certainly did make them a lot of money. And now they find themselves like so many people who get on his bad side, which is sort of getting lied about and cut out. Yeah. I mean, a similar thing happened to Barry Weiss a while ago. I think she had some reporting that cut across something that Elon was pushing. I can't even remember the details of the feud, honestly. But what did he do? He immediately unfollowed her. Like, celebrity breakup unfollow. It's so quick. It's extremely petty. He didn't even, like, normally if I'm going to do that, I'm just going to mute someone and leave the follow on because I don't like conflict. But no, he really goes for it. I think it probably speaks to how expendable a lot of these media personalities are to Elon. I mean, he's got really an inexhaustible supply of hype men, people who will tell him that he's a genius and who will promote any kind of interestingly framed leaks that Elon decides to put out there. So if Matt Taibbi doesn't feel like going along with that narrative today, well, that's fine. Just on to the next one. I think it's really interesting. Just the other day, Elon released what appeared to be his DMs with Matt Taibbi. I mean, and if you're a journalist, that's not what you want from a source. So I do think it's an interesting relationship that they have. It seems to be a bit more going on than just reporting on this guy. It seems to be something where they have some discussion, right, of what exactly they're going to put out there on Twitter. And it seems like that relationship is degrading behind the scenes. You look at how he's running Twitter and you say, huh, this guy isn't doing a very good job. But I think he's also sort of this Substack thing offers some insight into how poorly he's managing his media relations as well. I mean, these guys, these sort of intellectual dark web type, these Substacker people, I mean, people would have done anything for Elon. I mean, he was this connection to a lot of money. And so by cutting them off from like the main source of their livelihood, which is Substack, I mean, he, he made it a very easy choice for them. And so instead, I think he's going to have to resolve resort to, he's going to have to go down the list. I mean, as you said, there's a long list of people who can do this kind of Twitter file stuff. So who's up next? Probably Andy Nuo, Cat Turn, Ian Miles Chong. I mean, it's very believable that like he's just going to keep kind of sliding down this list. I mean, there's obviously Michael Schellenberger, the guy whose Twitter handle is Schellenberger MD because it's his initials. He's not a doctor, folks. I have to point that out. I mean, there is a long list of these people, but I kind of felt like Elon and the Substack people, I thought they had a good thing going. Yeah, I did. And I will say that, again, I hadn't heard of Substack notes before. And as I am eyeing the exit to Twitter. If this thing is to fall apart, where am I going? Oh, Substack notes. Hadn't heard about that. Maybe it works. All right, Will, who is our guest this week? This week, we've got author and podcaster Garrett Graff. He's written a ton of books, best-selling books, some on 9-11. He's got his most recent book is Watergate, A New History. His new podcast coming out this Wednesday is called Long Shadow, and it's a history of the roots of America's extreme right. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Fever dreams like All Daily Beast journalism exist because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. This week on Fever Dreams, we've got Garrett Graff. He's an author and podcaster, most recently of the book Watergate, A New History. This week, he's got a new podcast series coming out called Long Shadow, exploring the roots of America's far right. Garrett, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's so great to talk to you. <laughs> Thank you. So this season, first season of Long Shadow, you looked into 9-11, which was also the topic of one of your books. How would you describe this new season? So I've spent... 20 years at this point covering national security and intelligence and the war on terror. And as you said, in the first season, we went back and looked at the lingering questions around 9-11. And when I was looking at the national security landscape this year, or last year, really, what really stands out is a story that you have been a big part of telling as well, which is the biggest threat to America today is not from overseas. It's right here at home. So the goal with this series was to trace the rise of the 40-year history of the modern far-right extremism movement and how this movement with its roots in the Ku Klux Klan in the 1970s has morphed and evolved through a series of events, including Ruby Ridge and Waco and Oklahoma City, to the core of the modern Republican Party. And it is a remarkably more linear story than I imagined it would be when I started the podcast. Garrett, can you break that down a little bit more? Because obviously the KKK didn't do Ruby Ridge. They were different actors, but you have a really compelling through line in all those stories. What's unifying all these events and actors? So a couple of different things. One is this is a movement that in a way I think we underplay today is still rooted in white power, white nationalism, white supremacy. And the far right groups in the 70s and 80s and early 90s figured out that basically like the Ku Klux Klan, naked racism, white hood-wearing rallies were off-putting to a lot of potential sympathizers. And so they sort of reinvented the white power movement as what we now really recognize as the patriot militia movement. And it becomes this force that sees the government tyrannical and hopes in very explicit ways to overthrow the U.S. government, to roll back these civil rights movements, movements for LGBT rights, minority rights, women's rights, and sort of return America to pre-1950s society in a very explicit way. This is the Make America Great Again, Make America White Again movement. And I think one of the things that really stood out to me as we were working on this and becomes the through line of the story is that all of these events that we talk about as discrete episodes 
share actors, they share ideology, they share inspiration. And so tracing that from the 1970s and 80s right up through, again, Ruby Ridge, Waco, Oklahoma City, on to the rise of the militia movement again in the 2000s with the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Proud Boys, and on up through, we have episodes that look at the Bundy standoff in 2014, the Sugar Pine Mine standoff in 2015, the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge takeover in 2016, really become the kindling for the movement that we then see explode in the Trump administration, in Charlottesville, in the Charleston Church shooting, the El Paso shooting, the Christchurch shooting, and of course, then culminating with the insurrection on the steps of the U.S. Capitol. So, Gary, you start the podcast in Waco. You're walking around the ruins of the standoff there. How do you think it all started in Waco? I mean, that's really where you trace the beginning of the modern far right in America. Yeah. April 19th this month is the 30th anniversary of the fire at Waco. That was really the reason we wanted to do this story right now. And I think what you see is that the spark that grow into the wildfire of the modern far right are born in that siege at Waco. Many people recognize the tide from Waco to Oklahoma City. Of course, Tim McVeigh blows up the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building two years later on April 19th, 1995, the two-year anniversary of the fire at Waco. But, Will, you're probably one of the only people in the country who knows this part of the story. Alex Jones basically emerges from the ashes of Waco. He is this local public access talk show host in Austin, Texas. And his first big national play is to raise the money to build a church on the site of the Branch Davidian compound at Mount Carmel in Waco, Texas. And so when you go to Waco to and you go to Mount Carmel today, the land is still owned by the Branch Davidian sect. And what's there is the remnants of the compound that burned in 1993 and the church that Alex Jones built. And Alex Jones, you see his first conspiracy theories begin to emerge about the events of Waco. Then that grows into his national following as Y2K unfolds, as 9-11 unfolds. You see the beginnings of the 9-11 truther movement in Alex Jones after 9-11. And he becomes this very weird Rasputin-ish character looming in the background of all of these events over the last 20 years, up to and of course, including the Stop the Steal rallies and the January 6th insurrection itself. So just the other week, Trump held a campaign rally in Waco, right, almost coinciding with the anniversary of the siege. I was wondering what kind of message that sends Trump's base. And we, of course, could never have predicted that that was where Trump was going to start his presidential campaign when we started this podcast almost a year ago at this point. But his rally in Waco was a very specific message to a very specific corner of the far right. And it is this weird dog whistle of the far right, because this is the way that the far right views the Waco siege is 
that that becomes the moment where they become terrified of this tyrannical government coming for religious minorities, coming for Christians, and coming for people's guns. The whole federal siege at Waco begins with this apocalyptic doomsday cult of the Branch Davidians, led, of course, by David Koresh. And they are manufacturing machine guns, stockpiling ammunition, manufacturing hand grenades. And the ATF raids their property at the end of February in 1993. It is a disaster. It is four ATF agents are killed, as well as six Branch Davidians. 30 people are wounded. It is the largest law enforcement shootout in American history. The ATF ends up firing 1,500 rounds. The Branch Davidians fire 12,000 rounds back at the government. It kicks off this 51-day siege led by the FBI that ends in this terrible inferno that kills 76 of the remaining Branch Davidians who are inside at that point and becomes this lightning rod for the far right. One of the people who is actually goes to Waco there is... Tim McVeigh, this returning Gulf War veteran, sort of disillusioned by the American economy in the early 1990s, and is out working the gun show circuit, selling these anti-government bumper stickers and paraphernalia at gun shows across the country. And when he hears of the siege in Waco, he drives down and sets up a camp there and is sitting there selling anti-government bumper stickers outside the siege as it's ongoing. And of course, then is inspired by that fire to go on to plan the Oklahoma City bombing on April 19th, 1995. But one of the things that we really try to tell throughout this podcast is the way all of these stories are connected in a way that I think most people don't understand. That the way that we have told the story of Timothy McVeigh for the last almost 30 years at this point is that Tim McVeigh was a lone wolf, that him and Terry Nichols, his army buddy, come up with this plot to bomb the Oklahoma City Federal Building and carry it out, and that they are not part of a wider terrorist movement. They're not part of a terror cell. And that's really just not true. Tim McVeigh is a very important development in this far-right white power ideology and extremist movement. And when we talk about the April 19th anniversary, we always trace it back to Waco. That's not the only reason April 19th, 1995 was significant. April 19th, 1995 was also the date that the leader of a far-right group from the 1980s was supposed to be sentenced to death by the federal government. He'd been the leader of one of the main far-right groups in the 1980s, a group called The Order, which was based on the Turner Diaries, a sort of far-right apocalyptic how-to manual of how you overthrow a government. And McVeigh chooses that day of this leader's execution to blow up the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. And do you know what the plot was where that group, the order in the 1980s, was trying to blow up? It was the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City in the 1980s. So there's like this weird rhyme and rhythm to these stories across over 40 years. So how do we get from the Waco, the Oklahoma City bombing, Ruby Ridge, to January 6th? I mean, what happens in the meantime? Yeah, there's actually a very 
simple and straightforward answer to where the far right movement goes from 1995 to 2009, when Barack Obama is elected and the far right movement erupts again. And the answer is Fox News, that it is when you look at where the far right is radicalized in those 15 years, it is through the rise of this conservative media ecosystem, the vention and ever-increasing extremism of conservative talk radio, and then, of course, the creation of Fox News itself in the mid-1990s that becomes this vehicle for the hate, the sort of subtle white power ideology, the extremism, the messages about the tyrannical government, that moves from the far right fringes of pamphlets and early websites into the main veins and arteries of the right wing media ecosystem. So one thing that you touch on a lot is the role of Alex Jones. He founded this church at Waco. He's had this outsized influence, I think, on conservative media. I mean, Walk us through the role of conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones in the shaping of the American far right. It's an amazing trend to watch unfold over 30 years, in part because the far right very early on, I mean, this is going back to the early 1980s, is an early adopter of new technologies. One of the first places that the far right comes together is on an online message board in the early 1980s when those things were still very, very rare. Stormfront, the leading white supremacist website, is literally one of the first websites on the internet in the 1990s. What you see, and this is the arc of the series, it's the arc of our modern politics, is the way that these far right ideologies, this sort of subtle white nationalist, white power rhetoric moves from those fringes into the center of the Republican Party. And of course, culminating in 2016 with the nomination of Donald Trump as president and the explosion of white hate and anti-Semitism in the wake of that in the United States, which we we saw so clearly at Charlottesville in the spring of 2017, but then it globalizes as well. And you see the Charleston church shooting inspire the Christchurch massacre, where the guy in New Zealand who carries that out actually writes in his manifesto that he is hoping to inspire a race war in the United States with his massacre in New Zealand, and that that massacre then inspires other massacres here in the United States, including the El Paso shooting. The tragic event is one of the deadliest attacks on Latinos in the United States in history. And you see this backdrop of these people like Alex Jones fueling this, encouraging the violence in a very subtle way that then you see sort of set against this backdrop when you zoom back and look at this over 40 years of a very conscious decision by the white power movement in the 1980s and early 1990s to embrace something that was called leaderless resistance. 
which is basically this idea of we just speak the hate out loud. We're not responsible for whatever people might do with that hate once they hear it from us. And it allows them to develop this arm's length distance from the violence that their rhetoric is actually inspiring because it's not a terror cell like Al-Qaeda, where you have one ideological leader sort of coming up with and then directing the plots. It's a model that's much more akin to what we actually associate with ISIS, which is this group that basically creates this ideology, spreads it through novel media channels, and then is able to inspire violence and inspire radicalization of its adherents without ever actually knowing who those people are. So Garrett, as long as we have you, you've done so much national security reporting. What do you make of this recent leak of U.S. intelligence? I mean, how significant is this? And how do you think it ended up starting on a Discord chat of all places? It's a fascinating leak. We're obviously in the very early stages of understanding what the long-term damage of it's going to be. And certainly we don't know at this point whether there is any ideology behind it. It seems from the available evidence that we have today, it's one of the most damaging leaks of classified intelligence we have had since Edward Snowden himself, although that was a very distinct and different case for a variety of reasons. The thing that seems most damaging about this in this moment is the freshness and the newness of the intelligence as it leaks and the way that it is going to have immediate downstream ramifications for Ukraine fighting against Russia. The idea that Ukraine is having to alter its planned spring offensive against Russia based on these leaks is pretty worrisome. And we don't know, I think at this point, why these documents began to circulate on Discord and other sort of weird websites first. This does not seem like something that was necessarily a plan dump of information, because if it was, you would have dumped it somewhere else more visible earlier. And it's really strange. These papers look folded. We're seeing just uploads of photographs of them. I don't think we've ever seen anything like this in the history of espionage. And it seems sort of somewhere between a very damaging espionage betrayal and someone with a hoarding problem. And that's a weird case to sort of be trying to untangle as we were watching it in real time. Yeah, it's not exactly like Edward Snowden leaked NSA files on Minecraft server. So absolutely one of the weirder ones out here. Garrett, thank you so much for coming on the pod. Where can people find your work? So the podcast is Long Shadow Rise of the American Far Right, season two. You can find it anywhere that you find your podcasts. And if you are listening to this, you are probably someone who knows how to find podcasts. And then I am at GarrettGraff.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter and my work. And I appreciate the chance to come on and talk with you about a subject that you guys know very well yourselves. Thanks, Garrett. All right, and now it is time for Fresh Hell. 
Will, what are the weirdest people on Twitter up to this week? In Fresh Hell, we love talking about relatively mundane policy proposals that have become seen as like the mark of the beast or the new way that we're all going to start living in pods and eating the bugs. And so this week on Fresh Hell, I wanted to talk about Federal Reserve's plan for a digital currency. Both the New York Times and NBC have articles about how This idea of a digital currency has just absolutely freaked out a bunch of right-wingers who see it as essentially they think this will be like a dollar, but you can't buy guns with it. And so they're calling it like the woke dollar. Ron DeSantis is prepping a bill that would make it illegal to use the digital currency. I mean, it really is becoming a mess. What's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, I think we got to take a step back here because like you said, I mean, all these policy proposals that they freak out about are the driest, like just least fireworks legislation you could possibly imagine. The root of this is the Federal Reserve. It's preparing some digital transfer system that lets send money between each other a little bit fast. That's like, you're never going to see this. It just means Chase is transferring to, I don't know, not Silicon Valley Bank, but name another one. And instead of saying, okay, cool, whatever, they're going to have a slightly different wire transfer system. The right has made this into a very apocalyptic, they're coming for your gun money vision. Part of that is based on a completely independent white paper that the Fed released weighing the pros and cons of digital currency that people can use as cash. I will say that like so many places are cashless now, so many people don't really use cash. I'm not saying we should go cashless, but like it's the idea that, oh no, you're going to have to use something besides cash. It's like, okay, well, you should not use your credit card then if you're so mad about it. Again, these are proposals. It's either something to do with banks and not you or something that's not really on the table. Nevertheless, the nuance lovers like Ron DeSantis and RFK Jr., the anti-vax figure who has now cast his hat into the ring for the Democratic nomination, they've conflated the two of these things and they're introducing legislation or campaigning on it. RFK had a very long Twitter blue thread, or I should say a very long Twitter blue tweet because I can do thousand character tweets there now. And he's saying that this is part of a federal plot to seize Bitcoin. He's using an acronym that doesn't exist because he's intentionally or accidentally conflated these two programs and is saying that the digital money is coming out for you in like the summer or whatever. This is a kind of Agenda 21, I want to say, type language where they are looking at proposals or things that are just completely irrelevant and saying, well, Maybe this thing isn't happening now, but what if it was? (laughs) You're exactly right. I mean, with all these things, I mean, last week we talked about 15-minute cities, the urbanist thing that now has been rolled up into the idea that we're all going to live in open-air prisons. I mean, you look at these policy proposals and they have to say, well, but what if like an evil Matrix-type figure got a hold of this? So in the case of this digital currency, they're afraid that it's going to mean you can't buy guns or cars or even meat. So you go to the grocery store and you get your credit card and it goes like, no, sirloin. (laughs) whatever get some soy i have to say the speed at which ron DeSantis latches onto these things i hadn't even heard of this thing it really is like i feel like he just rips these things so quickly from true social he says can we do a bill on that let's do it it's amazing i think he just has to have like a legislative shop of posters right people who are like brawling telegram for the weirdest conspiratorial fear and they're like yep that's red meat throw it to the base i think this ties into there's a lot of republican priming for fear about this kind of system, right? It reminds me of recent fears about a social credit system where they're saying, oh, if you're not liberal enough, your credit's going to go down, that sort of thing. It kind of resonates with that kind of scaremongering. 
It is funny to me that this is getting such a foothold in Florida, which is maybe one of the last places I would imagine to be really frightened about digital currency is kind of a cryptocurrency Bitcoin hub. We've got the Miami crypto bros holding conferences there. So it is funny to see a sudden backlash to, oh, no, the money is online now. Well, that's kind of what they've been hyping up for the past five years. Well, there is the cryptocurrency angle, which sort of has a feel of like, wait a minute, I can't profit from this. (laughs) I can't pump and dump the Fed's digital currency. What use is this to me? Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that RFK is saying that this is a part of a plot to seize Bitcoin because any savvy investor would be trying to just dump their Bitcoin right now. Like you don't want anything to do with it. It's a terrible investment. So there is always this effort by Bitcoin bros to make policies about them. I do think it's interesting. This is coming out around the same time as New York Times reporting just on the devastating environmental impact of Bitcoin mining, they found that it raised household electrical bills in Texas by like 5% because people are mining so much Bitcoin down there. So the idea that it's good when private industries are extremely online, people with like board API club avatars are driving up your bills to get a digital currency. But if it's something regulated through the Fed, then that's evil and that's going to make you live in the pod. As long as we're on RFK Jr., Kelly, what's your take on his incipient Democratic presidential campaign? I mean, I think we've seen a lot of talk that, oh, Steve Bannon, he's doing one of his famous dirty tricks and all this stuff. I mean, what do you think of this? I just think it makes sense for RFK Jr., right? I mean, he had a bit of a heyday during early COVID era. He had these books about vaccines and Fauci, and they were trending really well. They were like on the top of Amazon and everything. I think as the country, for better or worse, moves away from COVID precautions, it's hard to rile the base exactly like he could in, say, I don't know, in 2020, 2021. So I think a presidential bid, obviously, is never going to materialize for him. He's never going to win office, but it does let him fundraise. It does get him out in front of crowds. He's got that incredibly famous name to trade on. So I think it's a really savvy move in terms of money and influence. I think you're right. And just think, obviously, the QAnon believers would think we might have JFK Jr. on the ballot in 2024. I'd prefer that, I think. Let's have that guy instead. Yeah, let's get Vincent Fusca on here. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 